Let's look at Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Let's pray together. Father, we are so excited about reading all of this today. And we know, Lord, that you have plans for each verse, each part of each verse, for each one of our hearts. And we yield our hearts to you, Lord. We want our hearts to be open to whatever you want to speak to them about. We want to have them be pliable and, and moldable, Lord. And so we pray that you would fashion us by your Holy Spirit through your word this morning to accomplish your purposes, to make us more like Christ. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Apparently, newspapers have a typeface called Second Coming. And it, they started it back in the 1900s. And basically, it's a font size, the biggest font size they have that they've reserved for the Second Coming or, a, or something that would be so big that it would just basically cover the whole front page, basically. And they've called that typeface second coming and i believe it's very appropriate when we started the book of revelation the first few words were the revelation of jesus christ and at that time i went over what that word revelation means it means unveiling and the word picture i tried to paint was a statue a brand new statue or sculpture or something that somebody has crafted and made and took time to to form and so forth and they put like a sheet over it and at one moment in time, when they want to let everybody see that piece of art, they pull that sheet away, and you see all of it all at once. You don't see any of it until you see all of it. And that's exactly what's going on with the, with the Lord Jesus and his revelation. This whole book has been a revelation of him. Not merely the end times, not merely the end of the world, not merely all the other things that we've seen, instruction to the seven churches, all these things that we've seen, it's everything. It's, it's all-encompassing 
demonstrating and revealing who he is. But now <laughs> we get to see him physically be revealed. You know, sometimes you look at these uh, home improvement shows. They don't real pro- or these, you know, where they fix them up, they flip these houses and everything. When the, when the real estate market crashed, they couldn't really find them. It's like, where are you? know, I don't see any. Uh, but they've come back. And they, they have these, they fix up a house and for somebody, and then they do the reveal where they will actually show the, the new owners this, this great, um, or the existing owners, this great remodel or whatever. And it's just like this one-time event that's so overwhelming. You're just, you, you haven't seen anything. And then all of a sudden you see everything. And this world is going to see the Lord Jesus in a way that it does not expect to. They're going, they're going to see him as this mighty conquering king. The first time he came as a suffering servant. The second time he's going to come as a conquering king. And so many of the Jews historically could not reconcile those two things. They clearly saw the Messiah be one who is a suffering servant who Daniel said would be cut off, but not for his own uh, uh, purposes, but for other people. And then we see the, the second coming in the, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament as well. So some of them kind of made this whole belief system where they had two messiahs coming. One a suffering servant, and then another entirely different messiah come as a conquering king. That's the only way they could reconcile those things. They were so clear in scripture, they never thought that he would come once and then come again. But that's exactly what's going to happen. So, you know, we saw last week the marriage supper of the Lamb. We saw um, those of us in heaven responding to him judging Babylon and all the worship that broke forth and so forth. And the worship, some of the worship was, was kind of like a catalyst for other worship related to the four living creatures and the 24 elders and so forth. And it just, heaven just broke free. I mean, broke loose with worship until it culminated with this wedding supper of the lamb that we saw. And so today we, we get to continue and see this second coming. We've waited for it for a long time, ever since, for me at least, I can only speak for myself, you know, starting the book, and I know that it ends well. And you, I know all the judgment's going to come, and I, you know, think of the things that we go through in life and so forth, and we, we sometimes say, we've read the end of the book, God wins. So I've known that, and you've known that, as we've gone through this book, knowing that it was going to culminate at his second coming. So I've been waiting for this. But also, as we've gone through the New Testament book by book, I've also known that it's going to culminate in the second coming. But more than that, you go through all of church history. You go through all of mankind's history. Just the history of man. That climactic event of Jesus coming the second time is so huge. So I'm just excited. I don't know if you're... I'm fine with being the only one excited here, if that's the case. But I am very excited. Listen to what we were told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. The Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse 25, And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power 
and great glory. That's going to happen. That's in our future. And I'm so excited that we get to see it today because he's going to end all this nonsense in this world. Man's selfishness, man's inability and incompetence to rule this world. You know, they just passed the emergency budget or whatever in the, in the government to fund the government and wasting so much money and not coming through with promises and taking care of their self-interest and all these things. I'm tired of it. I want Jesus himself to rule this world like yesterday, you know, but we have to wait, obviously. So I'm, I'm completely ready. Let's look at verse 11 as we begin. It says, now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So notice he says, he begins with, I saw heaven opened. That's not by accident. That's purposefully revealed to us to let us know that there was a point in time where it was the right time. You remember in Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked the Lord Jesus, you know, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father's placing under his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's focusing on this earthly uh, ministry time or church age time. But there's going to come a point in time where he sets up his kingdom. And so heaven was open. No one can open it. (laughs) And their own planning, heaven decides when it's going to open and when it's going to happen. And it does. And it says, and behold. Behold means to carefully consider. So we're supposed to consider that's kind of like a weak word when you talk about what we're considering here. I mean, just, it's, you might as well have said, be in awe, be awestruck, fall on your face in just amazement and being impressed because look who's here. Look, oh, heaven is opened up and look who's coming. Look who you're seeing. I mean, behold, it's just kind of, I don't know, it just doesn't do it for me. I just need something stronger than that. He says, a white horse. I believe this is a literal horse. Sometimes people say, you know, my, do, do my dog, does Fifi go to heaven? You know, Fifi die? I don't know. We're not told that they have the capacity for that. Whatever we, we would need or want or what would be best for us in heaven, we're going to have. But we know there's creatures. We've already seen them in the book of Revelation. But here we have horses here, a heavenly horse. I believe it's white. It speaks of purity. I remember when I was a kid watching the Lone Ranger reruns. From a long time ago, okay? They still show them today. So a kid can grow up today and say, I grew up saying, watching the Lone Ranger. But I remember being impressed with his horse. Like, wow, that's white. That's different. That's, no one else has a white horse except the Lone Ranger. That means he's something special, you know? I mean, I was so impressed with that. I'm like, why doesn't Tonto have a white horse? What's different? You know, they, like, not as equal or, you know, there's this conflict going on inside of me glad i moved on Um, but i believe it speaks of his purity and his holiness the one coming back to earth is pure and holy and that's what this world needs this world needs to have someone come back and take over that's pure and holy and righteous and fair and appropriate and it doesn't have that now because man is sinful so he's coming back on this beautiful white horse and it says and he who sat on him was called faithful and true don't you love that title faithful and true do you believe he's faithful and true well maybe generally but there may be times where some of us at times can question that of what we're going through 
And maybe it may appear, maybe my emotions don't tell me that he's faithful in the moment. Or maybe it appears that he's not being faithful. He's not coming through with what he said he would do. Maybe his promises aren't yea and amen, as we're told in Scripture. Maybe it doesn't seem like he's telling the truth. You know, it, there, those things can, and of course, the enemy's right there to cast doubt upon all of that. But we know no matter what our emotions say, we know that God's word reveals that he is faithful and true. And that's who he is. He's not going to stop being who he is. He cannot change. But I love that title. He who sat on him, that horse, was called faithful and true. And then we're told, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. You know, a lot of uh, a popular uh, phrase right now, and especially in younger groups, are, you know, don't judge you know don't judge and i understand what that means you know don't don't judge people's hearts and don't you know all of that we're not supposed to judge people's hearts or whatever but there comes a time where god's going to judge this world and they're not going to be able to say don't judge lord jesus don't judge he's going to say yes i am going to judge and it's appropriate that i judge he's the righteous judge He's perfectly righteous and holy and appropriate in his judgment. And we should welcome him coming to this world to make this world right, because it's not right. But it also says he makes war. Well, I thought Jesus was a pacifist. Wait a minute. I thought he said, turn the other cheek. I thought to wait. Oh, he says he judges and makes war. Yes, he is a God of war. When it's appropriate, when it's the right war, when it's supposed to be going on, but mankind's been at war with him, and he's going to put an end to that war by conquering sinful mankind in this battle. And what's interesting is that when those verbs there, he judges and makes war, those are in a tense in the Greek that communicates continuous action. He continuously judges. He continuously makes war. He continuously does the right thing uh, related to what people need in their lives he is the righteous judge he will always be the righteous judge he will always be appropriate in our lives but notice he says in righteousness he judges and makes war we can totally trust him to be the commander of of any army and to be the judge of any person we can completely trust him because in righteousness he does those things sinful man it's in unrighteousness that he does those things But with him, it will be complete righteousness driving all of it. Verse 12, his eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. So I believe these eyes that were like flames of fire speaks of his judgment. I don't know how they will look. I mean, maybe they'll be fiery red. I don't know. But I don't want him looking at me as a judge. I want to look at those eyes. I want to look right into those eyes. And those eyes want to look into my eyes. He wants to embrace me more than I want to embrace him. But I don't want to look at him or look towards him when he is, you know, being the judge or acting in judgment. I don't want to be on that end of things, and I'm not because I'm his son. But he comes with these eyes that are like a flame of fire. And then notice he says, and his head, and on his head, were many crowns. Now, you remember when we looked through other chapters where the Antichrist is spoken of as crown, having crowns and the, you know, the false prophet and so forth. That's a different Greek word. It's the, that's the Greek word Stephanus, which they would use to describe temporary crowns. And in a good sense, they used those crowns to reward athletes in the Olympics and similar games at that time. But they were temporary. 
For those athletes, there were wreaths that went around their head. And, and so, but this is a different word for Christ. He uses the word diadem, which means the, the real deal. The real crown, the official crown of the monarchy there. He has multiple crowns. He rules over many aspects of his creation. But I love this last part of verse 12 where he says, He had a name written that no one knew except himself. There's not, there's not going to be a, a, a relationship between him and us where we know every tiny little thing there is about who he is. He's still always going to remain infinite. There's going to be things that we are never going to know about him and about his ways. We are finite. And there's an infinite distance between the finite and the infinite. And so he has this name that only he himself knows. That just makes us wonder, what could it be? He already has so many other names. Go study the Bible. You'll see he has so many different designations. They don't even come close to doing justice to all of, of all of who he is. So he has this one that he only knows, he only knew except himself. Just another reason to worship him. Verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So some people believe this is speaking of the cross. Others believe this is actually having to do with what he's about to be engaged in, and that is war. And, and, and it's, it's prepared. It's prepared for battle and so forth. I want to read a passage from Isaiah 63, uh, verses 1 through 4. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger, I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. So we don't know exactly what this is, but he's ready for battle. And his robe is dipped in blood. And maybe it is speaking about the cross and so forth. But I think it's more dealing with how he's preparing for war and preparing for battle as the conquering king. And then we're told, and his name, or he, and, sorry, and his is called the word of God. And it's interesting that he's called the word of God because we're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word of God, that little phrase, communicates the exact same thing. Does it not? When you say the word of God, that's revelation. Every bit of God's word is revealed from God. So it's interesting that he's being referred to as the word of God because the word of God is revelation. And he's the totality of the revelation of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, he said in his public ministry. Then John, he's already written uh, related to this because he said, and the word became flesh. He said, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. Then later he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's saying that God came and manifest himself to us. He revealed himself. The word of God came in the flesh and, and by doing that revealed himself to man 
kind. It's very important that we see. He is the Word of God. He is the communication of God. He is the revelation of God to mankind. And, and it's fitting that he's called this in a book that is revealing him. It's, they go perfectly together. Now we get to see ourselves again, as we did last week in verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. At the second coming, we will come back with Christ to this earth. And it's very exciting just to think about. That's you. You're reading about yourself right there in verse 14. You are seeing yourself in the future, if you know Christ this morning. You are seeing yourself in the future. And there's a lot of verses that talk about this. Some people erroneously believe there's only maybe one place or whatever where it talks about that we're coming with Christ at the second coming. But I want to read you some of them. The main one that people refer to is in Zechariah. But there's another one in Jude where Jude tells us that Enoch, the one who walked with God and was no more, prophesied about that whole situation. And he said, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands, plural, ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. him. A lot of ungodly <laughs> words there. We're going to be coming with Christ. He's going to be ending the ungodliness in this world in, lar- by, in large part. But Zechariah is the main one. Zechariah chapter 14. Actually, why don't you turn over to that. Hold your place here. Zechariah, I believe it's one before Malachi. Malachi is the last one in the Old Testament. I think so. Pretty sure. Yeah. Right before Malachi. Okay, Zechariah, let's begin in reading in chapter 14. Still finding Zechariah. I know, it's, you don't go there all the time. There's grace for that. <laughs> okay, Zechariah chapter 14, beginning verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations. Wait, now who's gathering? Who's overseeing this? Who's sovereign over this? God, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, as you flee, as you, you shall flee as you fled, um, let me start over. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all, look at that, and all the saints with you. Now you can turn back to Revelation. So he's going to, when he physically comes back after his defeat of the armies and the Battle of Armageddon and all of that, he's going to touch down on um, 
the Mount of Olives. Then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, we're told, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So that's one that we forget about. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13 tells us this, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. I love that, right at the end of verse 13 there, with all the saints. So now notice he says in our verses here in Revelation, the armies of heaven. You didn't realize you're going to be in an army. You're like, well, I never served in the military. I don't plan on ever serving in the military. You're going to be in the military. It's going to be a heavenly military. You're going to be the army. If you have a history of the army versus the Navy and the Marines and all that, it's probably just a generic term. It's not like maybe, you know, you could be Marines in heaven. You could be, who knows, you know. I'm not favoring one over the other. It's just armies, just those that battle, I guess. It's a generic term here. So don't get all, whoa, I'm a Marine, and what's he saying, army? You know, we can relax. So, <laughs> so once again, we're looking at ourselves. We're looking at ourselves in the future, and we don't even raise a sword he does all the battle. I mean, it's just, he's just wanting us to come along. Someone said, I was talking to him earlier before the service. They said he just wants us to come along for the ride. You know, he's just letting us be a part of what he's doing. But he doesn't need us. <laughs> you know, he doesn't need us for anything. But we're on white horses. Can you ride a horse? Don't say, of course. Okay. I don't know if you, some of you remember that, uh, if you're old enough to remember uh, Mr. Ed, but you youth don't know what we're talking about. So, uh, But I remember riding a horse as a, as a kid for the first time. I think it was up at Kennedy Meadows. And my Aunt Adora, um, she was an explorer, um, <laughs> but she was spoiling me and my friends and they brought us up there and let us ride horses. And I remember riding that thing just going, this is not safe. How do people do this for thousands of years before now? I'm going to die, you know. But you, we're going to be good at riding horses. It's just going to come just automatically. We're just going to be, and you know, they're not, they're heavenly horses. So they probably have autopilot and all that. Just, you know, you're not punching any directions or GPS in or whatever. But God says, go there, and it just goes. And you're like, okay, cool, autopilot. I don't have to think about it. So you're going to be riding a horse, um, and that's going to be a blessing. And, and they're white horses. Speaking of purity again, we're going to be pure. But notice also we're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now last week we saw in verse 8 that we were granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So because of how he uses our lives by his grace and he blesses us because of him using us, which is crazy because it's all because of him. So why is he blessing us? He just is a blessing God. And then that affects, though, how we are in heaven. It affects our place in heaven, what we're responsible for, all those things. And so we're going to be clean and bright, fine linen and so forth. And we don't need any battle armor. (laughs) We're going to be just clothed how we're always clothed in heaven. It's not like we have to gear up for some real threat from these from this the world's uh, leadership and and so forth in the countries and everything that's not going to be the case our armor is our righteousness just like now right the breastplate of righteousness and then the helmet of 
salvation, right? So those, in my view, those protect the most vital organs in, in, a, in, in a real battle situation. You know, your, your vital organs here and your head and so forth. And he does all of those things. He provides the righteousness for us spiritually. He provides salvation for us from beginning to end. He's the, he's the author and finisher of our faith. And so it's all by his grace. We don't wear those spiritual things because we're worthy. We wear them because he's worthy and because of, of who he is. And so it's important for us to know that our, how we're um, dressed in heaven and how we look in heaven and all of that is based on his grace and his mercy being extended to us. And it's the same today. We are positionally 100% righteous in his sight. We are legally, positionally, 100% holy. When he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ in a positional way. So we are just as bright and clean and, and, and just like how we're longing to be in a physical sense, we are just like that right now spiritually in the sense of our positional standing with him. And that's supposed to affect how we live our lives and how we walk as believers because we need to walk as he's called us to walk based on who he says we are. And based on what he says he's done for us. And so no matter what our minds say, no matter what our emotions say, no matter what our circumstances say, we are 100% righteous in his sight. And when we confess our sins and we're cleansed from all unrighteousness, it's because of the fellowship there. It needs to be back to what it was. Just like as if I sinned against you, I need to confess that. Or there's something in between us there that's not good for our relationship. But, my, but if I'm a, a, a son and I sin against my father, I'm still his son. I'm still, legally, I'm still his son. There's something maybe relationally that needs to be fixed, but I'm still his son. And that's supposed to give us confidence to go forward in our walk with him instead of uh, insecurity. He doesn't want any of his children insecure in, in our relationship with him. He wants us totally secure. So he's made it completely one-sided, all based on who he is and what he's done. So that I can be free to enjoy him. See, that's part of accepting who we are in Christ. So we are just as bright and clean positionally right now. Maybe that's a revelation for some of us here. And he says, have confidence before me. Go towards me because your failure hasn't affected who you are in me. So let's think about that. Verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it it should strike the nations. It's interesting. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. He speaks, and his words have implications. He's the one that spoke and the universe came into existence. He doesn't need to actively do anything else. He can just speak, and things happen. And to strike the nations, again, they're all gathering together to make war against him at this point. We've already covered that. And he himself will rule them with a rod of of iron so he's going to rule them and he's he's going to do it appropriately and he's he's not going to be uh, someone that can be walked all over in the sense of him governing he's going to be someone that lays down what should happen and enforce that just like he does now he does that in our lives (laughs) right now and he's going to be continuously faithful just how, how as he's always been and in the middle of verse 15 notice he says and he himself It's emphasizing Jesus here. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The old winepresses, you just walked and stomped on grapes. That's that's what a winepress was. 
So the pressure, that crushing pressure, that's the picture. That's, that judgment's going to come with the same crushing pressure as anyone else crushes grapes in, a, in, a, in the old style of wine presses. And it's the wrath of God, the judgment that's coming to this, to this world. Verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he has a robe, a kingly robe there. And he has that King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his robe. But in addition to that, it's written on his thigh there. And he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no king that's greater than him. And someday this world is going to bow to that and recognize that. There's not going to be ISIS. There's not going to be Al-Qaeda. There's not going to be people that are interested in destroying people anymore he's going to rule this world appropriately and he's going to do it flawlessly and it's i can't wait verse 17 then i saw an angel standing in the sun now we don't know if he's standing in the sun itself or in in the way of the sunlight you know if someone says yeah you're in the sun right now i can't see you know that's could be that as well we don't know but it says and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven come and gather together for the supper of the great god now there's in verse 18 we're going to see a repeating word and that repeating word is flesh that you may eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Last week we talked about that chapter 19 has two feasts in it. It has the marriage supper of the Lamb, that feast, and it has the feast of the birds after Jesus judges his enemy. And you want to be at the first one, for sure. You're invited to the first one, the second one, you're on the menu. And so we don't want, we don't want to be on the menu there, and we're not, because we know him and so forth, but that's going to happen. He's preparing this defeat and these birds. It's part of the judgment that they, they uh, should receive, that's appropriate for them to receive, is to have their bodies uh, eaten by birds. That's part of the judgment. So man is going to become so arrogant that he's going to forget that he is mere flesh, and so God's going to judge him. You know, we, we can't even, it's been said, we can't even fight a common cold really well. How are we going to fight Almighty God? They're going to look at him. They're going to come all against each other and against the Antichrist, and then at one moment they're going to see Christ and us coming behind him, and they're going to divert all their resources towards fighting him and, and us. And that's what we see in verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and then look at the last part and against his army against us <laughs> who do you think he is coming against us no i'm just kidding it's the lord jesus that's the one that's in the insanity for them why would they even think that's even an option i mean wrong answer is not is an understatement there you're going to fight against god he's literally in coming from heaven heaven's been opened he's on a heavenly horse a heavenly horse he's coming with this army there on horses and all of a sudden you think you're going to do something against that that's going to make you make a, a difference i mean that's the insanity the entire world's army stand in opposition and defiance against 
God himself. Their cruise missiles, their tanks, their nuclear submarines, their special forces, their Navy SEALs, their battleships, their drones, everything's just unleashed on God himself coming. And it's not going to do anything. It's not even going to, it's not going to accomplish one single thing. They're completely consumed by God's judgment, by his word. Remember in chapter 13, we read this. Let me read this verse. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now they know. (laughs) You think there's no one that can conquer the beast? Yes, there's someone that can conquer the beast by far, not even a battle, not even, there's not even, he's not even going to even work up a sweat. It's nothing. It's no big deal whatsoever. Hold your place here and turn over to Psalm chapter 2. I've been referencing this psalm for a little while, off and on, and I want us to see it because this is exactly what's happening. And we get a little bit more insight that we're not given in Revelation uh, in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? They're going to be full of anger when they do this, when they try to fight the Lord Jesus. And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. They're going to collaborate against Jesus. They're going to collaborate. They're going to work together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the, that's the Lord Jesus saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And then here's the response from heaven. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The Lord's going to confuse them. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. That's that sword and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. There's songs that talk about this. And it's usually not referring to this judgment, but this is what it's talking about. Him giving the son the nations as an inheritance has giving, is talking about this victory here when he defeats these nations that come against him. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. You can turn back to Revelation. So he's going to laugh. <laughs> you're trying what? Are you kidding me? You're going to actually think that you're going to defeat me with all your nuclear arsenal, whatever you want to throw God's way. You're not going to win against him. You're not going to win whatsoever. It's not even going to happen. Not even going to come close. Kiss the son lest he be angry. You need to respect him. You need to respect his authority. That's why when they see him, it says they're going to mourn. Because they're going to, oh, no. He's the one we've been using as a cuss word. 
We've been using his name in vain all this time. He's the one that we speak against. We're trying to get in the way of people learning about him in school. We teach things that are against the Bible knowingly. I mean, you go down the whole list. We've, we're okay with, with uh, behavior he says is sinful. We, I mean, we, it, they know it's him. They know it's him. He doesn't have to have a name tag on him when he comes. They know it's him. They know the judgment that they've received. Remember, only 25% of the world's population is alive at this point. Already, 75% of the world's population today would be like 5.2 billion people are gone, are dead already. They've hardened their heart. We've seen it all through the book of Revelation, and they did not repent, and they did not repent, and they did not repent. And these kings are organized against him, and he's going to punish them rightly and justly. Verse 20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive. Notice that word alive. They were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed. And the sword, with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled, that's an interesting word, that were filled with their flesh. So this judgment finally comes down. He, he doesn't deal with the dragon here. He doesn't deal with Satan yet. We're going to see that coming up. But he deals with the Antichrist and the false prophet and these armies. So he takes them alive. He takes the Antichrist and the false prophet. They were taken alive. And they were cast into the lake of fire, but the rest were killed. So remember, Hades has not given up its dead yet for the great white throne judgment. So all these armies of, of this world that come against him that are completely slaughtered by just a word coming out of his mouth, they go to Hades like all people that don't know Christ go to Hades right now. They go to that holding tank there in the center of the earth. And they're waiting that judgment. And so when then, but the, but the punishment for the Antichrist and the false prophet is greater in the sense that they're taken alive and they're thrown immediately into the lake of fire. This is before the great white throne judgment happens. They're thrown immediately into the lake of fire alive without having been judged at the great white throne judgment. It's completely appropriate. He doesn't want them to be killed and go temporarily to Hades to be resurrected and given a new body to be judged at the great white throne judgment. That's too good for them. He wants them to be cast alive into the lake of fire and that's what happens. And then notice all the birds were filled with, with their flesh, this, this uh, army. And it doesn't matter what kind of advanced body armor they have. They're to protect themselves. Those birds, they're going to get their flesh. And they're going to eat them and devour them. And they're going to have a feast. And like I said, he lands, as we read in Zechariah, he lands on the Mount of Olives. Now, when you go to the Mount of Olives today, you can stand on the top of that mount there. <clears throat> and when you're not being completely harassed by people wanting you to buy souvenirs <laughs> you can actually focus for half a second and look up and you look up at the sky and you think he is coming back and he is landing right here and he's going to place his foot and it's going to split at that moment and then he's going to go into through the eastern gate into the old city there proclaim himself to be the messiah and they will receive him so that's an incredible thing if you ever get a chance to go to israel that's one of the highlights is being on the Mount of Olives knowing, first of all, he ascended there. Remember in Acts chapter 1? He, he went up to, as you're like trying to picture, okay, what would the disciples see 
is he's going up, and when did he go out of the, his, their sight into a cloud or whatever? And then you're picturing coming back with us. So if you don't go to the Mount of Olives now, you're going to, it's going to happen. You're just going to, it's going to be at the second coming, you're going to make it to there. So maybe you can save yourself some airfare. I don't know. <laughs> he's going to end everything that is related to rebellion. There's only going to be one more time where there's going to be an expression of rebellion when there's going to be some after the thousand-year millennium that want to rebel and Satan's loosed for a short time out of the um, bottomless pit and then they're devoured with fire from heaven. So he's wrapping it up. He's, ra- he's coming back to this earth. and it just We need to filter everything that we hear in the news, everything that comes through through the filter of you know, television and all these things. We need to look at everything through the book, through the prism of his word and his revelation. He's going to end all of this craziness. We can't have our, let our hearts sink when we see these things happen, thinking that somehow God is not on the throne. He's not coming back. He is. And it's supposed to create an anticipation and a hunger and a thirst to want him to come back even sooner. Because we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. We're going to be taken out here seven years before this. And if we're getting close to the end and we're seeing the signs related to a second coming, how much closer are we for the rapture? And he says, talks about it so many times in the scriptures. When I come, don't be found doing stuff that you shouldn't be doing. You need to be, be found being fruitful and being busy and occupying until he comes. So when he comes, he finds us being good managers of what he's entrusted us with. Not just finances, but our time and our gifts and all of those things. And we have to fight against this world making us or, or putting pressure on us to focus so much on us and, and our lives. And we need to to an extent, obviously. That's part of good stewardship, to focus on our, our own responsibilities. But he's always working to get our focus on eternity, off of ourselves, onto others, investing in the kingdom, being about the kingdom, and so forth. That's what he wants each Christian's life to represent when he comes. I'm talking about the rapture, because he comes unexpectedly. That's what we're talking about. He's going to come unexpectedly for us. These people, if you were in the tribulation, you could count the years from the signing of the peace contract, which starts the seven-year tribulation, you'd know exactly where you're at in the whole thing. And the people that get saved after the rapture, that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to know exactly where they were at in the whole chronology of everything. So for us, it's going to happen in a just boom. It's going to happen. We're in heaven. We're at the, at the bema seat of Christ. We're at the judgment seat of Christ. Like that, we're there. We're right before him giving an account for our lives. That should produce a sobriety in each one of our lives to be living how we should be living for him. What are we doing? And I I exhort myself, what am I doing? What am I engaged in that's related to eternity? We can put such a huge emphasis on temporal things to the neglect of the eternal things. And he says, don't do it. Lose your life for my sake and you'll find it. Quit trying to save your life. You're going to lose it. You're not going to have fulfillment. You're not going to have all the things that you believe you're going to have if you put the things of this world first. Put him first and let him add to everything else. And he knows what he's doing. And every time that we do that, we put eternal things first, all of a sudden everything else that's temporal seems to line up. I know I've seen that, and I know that you have as well. So let's take this to prayer. We're starting a new year coming up. What does the Lord have us in the middle of? What are we going to be, what new ministry are we going to step out into? What new way am I going to disciple my kids? What book of the Bible am I going to learn? How, how is my prayer life going to grow? How am I going to share my faith? Maybe you've never even led anyone to Christ. 
What a great goal for, the, for 2015. I'm going to lead someone to Christ in 2015. I'm going to learn how to preach the gospel. I'm going to equip myself to speak to people that disagree with my worldview and be able to open doors with them by asking questions and being a friend and being unconditionally loving towards them. I'm going to get to know my neighbors. Boy, would I fail in that department. You know, just there's all kinds of things. Let's take stock in eternity. And we, he's always fighting to get our focus off of the temporal onto the eternal. So let's take that to prayer, especially in light of the fact that we're going to be coming back with him to this world. We're going to see what better vantage point does anyone have except coming back. I mean, we're, you know, it's like, woo, you know, we're coming back. He's ahead of us. And he's like, whoa, do you see what he just did right there? It's like, yeah, I did. I see that. And we're like, whoa, you know, we're like, this is the best thing I've ever experienced. I can't believe it. Hey, this course is going a little bit too fast. How do I slow this thing down? You should know that. You sure you have a new body? Oh, yeah. You know, and you're just, woo, you know, and I mean, that's coming. We're going to be with him for eternity. We're going to be when he destroys all of those nations coming against him in Israel. And we're going to touch down with him to start the thousand-year millennium. That's the truth. Let's take that to prayer. Let's see what he says to us. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for how good you are. Thank you for your revelation. Thank you for equipping us so much, Lord. Help us to not focus on what we're lacking and let that stop us from going forward and doing what you've called us to do. Help us to focus on how big you are and how powerful you are. You're so good at equipping those that you've called. Help us to get the temporal away from our perspective, Lord. Lead lead and guide each one of us, Lord, for what you want us to do in this new year. Bear fruit through this fellowship, Lord. Fruit that remains, that glorifies you. Help us to put no limitations on you through our lives. Help us to run hard after you. Help us to raise our kids well and be great examples for them of faithfulness and fruitfulness by your grace and by your power. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you, Lord, that you're doing so much in our midst right now. Thank you for all the ministries you're about to bring forth. We thank you in advance for the fruit that you're going to bear through them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.